Hi, this is Melanie C and you're listening to the Henley Festival Podcast. Yes, hello and welcome to the Henley Festival Podcast. Exclusive interviews from acts and artists who appeared at the festival in 2017. Coming up, we'll be hearing more from Melanie C. She talks about life on the road and living next door to the All Saints. There's also Mitch Ben, Britain's leading musical satirist, with his revelations about partying with Sting. One of the most romantic stories you'll ever hear from the Anglo-Romani jazz duo Faith and Branco, a real sensation at the festival. And we'll be hearing from this man. Is this the BBC and do, the, by the way, the Labour Party and Jeremy Corbyn have questions? I, I think a chocolate on Rob would be my favourite. Now, if you were around at the time, this may be enough to make you feel very old indeed, but it's nearly 20 years since the Spice Girls split up. After burning so brightly for much of the mid-90s as a collective, the pressure was on each of them to forge a solo career. But anyone listening closely would have realised that the one they called Sporty Spice had a big advantage. The others could sing... But Mel C had a real voice. Now, going by the name of Melanie C, her appearance at Henley Festival floating stage came on the Sunday evening, just ahead of All Saints. And I caught up with her moments after she'd finished. You've just come off stage after your gig at the Henley Festival. It was terrific. There was one particularly special moment when a, a group of young girls all got on stage. But I'll let you describe it. What were you seeing? What was happening there? Well, it's been an incredible night. What a wonderful setting to do a gig. My first time here at Henley, hopefully not my last. But it's been really fun, actually. Recently, I've been doing a Spice Girls song in the set. And um, it's quite difficult to sing a song all on your own when there's usually five people singing along. So I saw some young girls in the audience and uh, I thought they could come and give me a hand. And uh, I was just engulfed by, uh, by young... I think they were around 12, 11, 12. So, and it was such a wonderful, you know, lovely thing to do. They really enjoyed it. The audience loved it. It was a really nice, nice energy on stage. How different is touring these days to uh, back in when you were with the Spice Girls? Um, it's really different. You know, I I feel so lucky that I was part of the Spice Girls and all of the wonderful experiences I had with them. But to have gone on and to be a solo artist and still be going out and doing great gigs like tonight, you know, I feel just so lucky that having that start in my career has enabled me to carry on. And we'll hear footsteps in the background and that is actually your family <laughs> stepping in the back. We might hear it, it's Scarlett who's with, who's with you tonight, is that yeah. right? So in that way it's incredibly different. It's Yeah, and it's wonderful, you know, again, it's a very family affair here, you know, it's a lovely festival, the weather's been great, both myself and the All Saints girls have brought all the kids along so it's just really nice everyone can get together and have a good time and you know it's it's a moments like this that make you feel like really really lucky for what you do as a career. I was sitting with my I was standing dancing with my wife mm-hmm. and there was this one moment I said to her I, thought, I really hope she does baby when you're gone and yeah. my wife said but no how's she gonna do it's just her there thought, don't worry they'll find a way and thank goodness you did. Um, big hit like that was a massive massive song and I'm thinking I wasn't necessarily a Spice Girls aficionado don't get me wrong but when that song came out and I remember you singing I thought whoa she can really sing that is something there is that a special song for you in particular do you know it's a very special song for me it was the first thing I did on my own without the Spice Girls and you know Brian Adams I have a lot to thank for because he really gave me the confidence to go on and, and become a solo artist and he's still a dear friend and yeah I, I thank him all the time for giving me that opportunity. How 
how do you choose a set list for a gig night tonight? Um, it's it's always quite tricky choosing set lists, and I think I've come to a point in my career. I'm on my sec uh, my seventh solo record, and of course songs with the girls and and some duets I've done with other artists, and we just want everyone to have a great time. So on a night like tonight, you want to have crowd pleasers. So we just keep the set moving, keep it really up, really build to a crescendo at the end, and it really paid off tonight. The audience were fabulous. I got them on the feet early on, and they stayed there. So as an artist, you can't ask for much more. All killer, no filler, essentially. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> nice. Thank you so much. So um, now I can see you're all pretty good movers. Oh, I'm singing this. Yeah? I hope. You're not gonna sound good. As good as you look. Uh, now, I'll right. tell you a little story. It's very, very strange. In the late nineties, a friend of mine convinced his younger sister that the Spice Girls all live together in the same house. And I know there's an element of truth to that, mm -hmm. but the next part of the story, he also convinced her that you live next door to the All Saints, who we can hear <laughs> playing play here, here tonight. Now, first of all, I need you to point out that that isn't true, <laughs> but you mentioned halfway through, uh, meeting point through the gig, that it's like being back in the 90s today. How special when you look back on the era is it? Oh, it's such an incredible time and, and such fond memories. You know, obviously it was a big time for the Spice Girls and All Saints, but it was a great time in Great Britain. You know, we had a new prime minister, Labour in government. We had all these high hopes for change and it was a very buoyant time. You know, musically as well, pop music was great. We had Britpop as well. So it was just a really, the economy was healthy. Everything seemed very positive. So I think in, in slightly more troubled times that we seem to be in now, we can look back quite romantic. But you did not live next door to the All Saints. Well, there's, there's a, a tiny bit of truth in that. Oh, God. So, Marvelous. well, I I live very close to to Nicole and Natalie. We all live um, in Northwest London, up in Hampstead. So we've you know we've known each other and hung out and, and been friends for telling the kids today for like 20 years. You know we've known each other that long. So their children are here today as well. <laughs> yeah. So basically we've got the All Saints and the Spice Girls children <laughs> running around together. Yeah, absolutely. That's terrific. And yeah, and it's you know that's why. It's so lovely. And our parents are here as well, so it's a real family affair. My name's uh, Nick Grimsh, um, Russell Kane, and you're listening to the Henley Festival podcast. Monty! Mitch Benn has been hailed by the Sunday Times as the country's leading musical satirist. Until recently, he was a mainstay of BBC Radio 4's Now Show, and he also has six studio albums to his credit, so plenty of songs to choose from. At the 2017 Henley Festival, he played the Salon Comedy Club, but would have been equally at home on the floating stage. When I spoke to him ahead of his appearance, he revealed a surprising story about Sting, but not before a spot of improvisation. So I'm here with Mitch Ben here at uh, Henley Festival. And uh, Mitch, talk me through what are you trying to do at the moment with your lovely well, little guitar? Well, I was just having a fiddle with the guitar and I just, just to warm my fingers up went... Which is of course messaging about by the police. For some reason you thought it was Echo Beach by Martha and the Muffins. And I thought, how does Echo Beach go? Because it's a similar, it's similar vintage and a similar kind of, And I think it's... I think it's... Is it Amy? Hang on. So 
something like that, isn't it? We're going to have to pay a fortune yeah. now to both Sting and Martha the Muffins. I know, but we'll, we'll find a way around I it. I met Sting once. I met him at a, a, this celebrity party that I had absolutely no business being at. <laughs> and he was the only guy who gave me the time of day all night. He was, he was nice. And I've never... I, he, was, he, was, he was literally the nicest guy I met the whole evening. And it's, it's one of those guys... I've, I've never read a nice word about Sting. I've never read anything about Sting that isn't just, just how thoroughly unpleasant he is. And then I met him and he was great. And this thing, you really can't tell, you know. And I think maybe he just really hates journalists. So like, if you meet him in any kind of journalistic capacity, immediately he decides he hates you, you know what I mean? And just becomes completely unhelpful. But if you just bump into him at a party, he's, 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 he's the, the soul of politeness. So anyway, yeah. What did you chat about? What did he ask you? Uh, it was just after, bizarrely, my little girl had done her first ever gig and we were, we were talking about kids following us into the business because his son's band supported the police on their reunion tour about 10 years ago. I remember they had that sudden reunion tour, having not spoken to each other for 20 years, they suddenly had a reunion together, which I missed, I really, because I, I loved the police when I was a kid. You know, I, I know that I'm, I'm, you know, the, the people have, you know, reputations of being sort of great, sort of, you know, life and soul of the party or anything, but, you know, you really can't tell. Anyway, no money, I'm still about me. Yeah, absolutely. Like, you know, speaking of which, tell me, uh, speaking of artistic egos, suddenly remembered why I'm here. Anyway, go on. <laughs> have you ever been, not necessarily played Henley before, have you ever been to Henley before? What do you know of I've the place? I've been pretty much everywhere, and the only things I really know about it are the festival and the Ugatra, and I have played this before, and I don't recall it being quite this big and rock festival-ish. I think that may be a recent development. I remember, I remember um, doing, again, quite a late night gig in front of a fairly well-dressed crowd uh, in the summertime, but I don't remember there being a, a kind of a, 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 a sort of stadium field with the Pet Shop Boys on, like 25 that's what we yards can hear away. In the background. Yeah, that's the actual Pet Shop Boys, folks, isn't it? And Henley has that, I suppose, its uh, unique selling point of people all dressed up to the nines, looking incredibly flash. Yeah, I'm, I'm wearing my bow tie yeah, tonight. You, you, you seem to have neglected Bond, yours. I'm, I'm, I'm seriously letting the side down <laughs> in that respect, but uh, I think, I think, you know. He, what, Does that change your approach? It can't help but. Um, it, it's interesting because usually, on the one hand, you find it slightly off-putting because the only other time you play an audience that's all in black tie is when you're being dragged on at somebody's Christmas ball or something. <laughs> and that's usually a complete non-starter, but so damn well paid you just suck it up. <laughs> you know what I mean? You're usually getting a good few thousand quid to be completely ignored by drunk people in dicky. Can you give an example of it? any examples of that that you've oh, done? God, well, I mean, I've done, I mean, you do weird fun. I mean, it, this one wasn't black tie, but I remember many, many years ago, doing some corporate function for some company that I think was an offshoot of BT or something. And it was up in Manchester on the, on the, the back lot of Granada Studios. And it was me and two other comics, and they put us on at midnight after the karaoke and the share tribute. But they were so drunk by the time we went on. And there, there is this idea, oh, don't worry, we'll get them nice and drunk. No, no, some inhibitions are good. And knowing which way the stage is is a very positive attribute in an audience. And remembering why you're there and not actually blacking out and throwing up on your shoes. You know what I mean? This, there comes a point at which an audience is just unentertainable. And they were way past that point. At one point, a guy passed me on his way to the toilet and was feeding himself along the wall. You know what I mean? <laughs> like he was sort of crawling along the wall with his feet on the ground, just feeding himself along it like it was some kind of precipitous ledge, you know. And, and I'm like, oh my God, we haven't got a prayer here. And it was, yeah, that was a complete waste of everybody's time, but quite a lot of money, so what are you going to do? I um, suppose you've always got to be adaptable because this 
it's, it's, it's kind of a blank slate standard because technically there's very, very little going on. I mean, there's more going on with me than with most people because I've got a guitar and I sing songs. But all that's actually happening is a person on a stage saying stuff. And in within that framework, look, literally anything can happen, you know, and, and you have to be, because it's, in, it's in that respect, it's such a blank slate. It's, it's, it's not structured in the way that, you know, a play is structured or a band is structured or um, even, excuse me, even somebody who's <laughs> left his phone on is structured. And, you know, um, it's, 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 it's... That was Sting. <laughs> yeah, it was Sting saying, what are you saying about easier for you to write uh, satirical songs a current climate? Yeah, but I'd rather not. I mean, this is, this is you know, um, something, you know, the great John Stewart said about 10 years ago. People said, ah, oh, but a minute, you like it, don't you? You, you know, you, you, you love it, you satirist. You love it when everything's going wrong. You love it when everything's, you know, the wheels are falling off and society's going, to, you know, it, you love all that. And it's like, you're out of your mind? <laughs> and I've got children. You know, I'm, I'm trying to raise kids. And if, you know, them... If you know, if if they get to live in a happy and prosperous world, if that means I've got to try a bit harder to come up with zingers, then then that's that's the price I'm willing to pay. You know, so yeah. On the one hand, there's a, you know the universe is rather shoveling material at us in the, at the moment, but I'd really rather it wasn't. I'd rather have to work a bit harder to come up with the gags. The other comics, they maybe only, they only need a microphone when they go travelling around. You have to travel around with, albeit it's quite a it's a lovely, beautiful little guitar. Is there any jealousy there? Or is it I quite not really? No, um, not not once I got the dinky one. Anyway, I mean it's yeah. I mean for for, for the folks for the benefit of the folks at home, I play a Yamaha Traveler guitar, which it looks like a regular guitar, but it's only about three quarters the size. And for reference sake, Ed Sheeran plays a Traveler guitar as well. He plays a Martin Traveler, but nobody can tell because he's literally five foot high. Uh, I met him once. He's a thoroughly nice guy, but he's tiny and I've seen a photo of him standing with his arm around Taylor Swift's shoulders so either she was on her knees or he was on a box <laughs> because she is a good foot taller than Ed Sheeran so anyone Sometimes listening at the moment who's considering you know they, they fancy yeah. themselves or fancy giving musical comedy a go what would you say to them what advice would you give I'd say send me the mp3s to mitchbenhotbell.com and I'll use them in my podcast um, <laughs> I don't know I think the important thing is to do something which you genuinely think is funny I think one of the mistakes that people all at all levels of the industry make is is they uh, they make stuff that they don't like but that their target audience that their marketing people have assured them that their target audience will like so that what you end up with is stuff that by the time it gets out of the public arena, nobody's actually liked it yet. <laughs> you know, the person making it doesn't like it. He just thinks that, you know, the intended audience might like it. You know, the, um, the people commissioning it, they don't like it, but they think that the intended audience might like it. And I ended up with pop music is the kids buying it don't like it, but they just fancy the guy or girl who's singing it. You know? <laughs> and you end up with an awful, particularly in pop music, you end up with an awful lot of music which comes out where literally nobody actually likes. And I think if you do something that you like, by the time it gets out into the open, at least one person has liked it. And as such, it's exponentially more likely that other people will like it too, because you're not that weird. You know, you're, um, you're a creator, but you're not that weird. You're not, it's so utterly freakish that the stuff you think is funny or groovy is going to be completely lost on everybody else. So if the one thing, one reassuring line we can tell people who are thinking getting into this is, you're not that weird. <laughs> well, some of you are, but, you know, most of you aren't. But, yeah, but just, just, just do the stuff that you think is good. Do the stuff that you think is good and worry about everybody else feels about it later. Hello, I'm Ruby Turner, and you're listening to the Henley Festival podcast. Mitch Ben wasn't the only satirist in action at the Henley Festival. The opening act on the opening night saw Matt Ford make his way to the Salon Comedy Club. Political humour is his game, including, as you'll hear, a first-class impersonation of a former Henley MP. But I started off by asking if he'd ever been to Henley before. 
I don't think I have. I thought I had, but then when I got out of the train station, I walked the wrong way through the car park, so I definitely haven't been here. I ended up near that care home at the back end of the car park, which anyone who knows, I've now got an intimate knowledge of uh, whatever it's called, Acorn House, whatever it's called. Um, so no, this is my first time here, and it's one of, the, one of the most beautiful places in Britain. So are you aware that Henley is where uh, Boris Johnson was first an MP? What are your thoughts of playing in, uh, if you pardon the expression, Boris Johnson's old patch. Oh, it's a, it's a, it's a, uh, it's a great honour um, to be in the, uh, in the confines, shall we say? No, no, no. Let me just, for the sake of the record, make it absolutely. Good. I mean, I do, I do a bit of material at the moment about how he's always got, he's got sort of ten answers. He's answering ten questions at any one point. Is this the BBC? And do the, by the way, the Labour Party and Jeremy Corbyn have questions? I, I think a chocolate hot dog would be my favourite. And I, you know, I mean, these ISIS chappies, what are they up to? You know, he's, he's, he's always got a million and one different things on his mind. So it's an honour to be in the, uh, in the, in the old patch of uh, one of our biggest politicians. We are recording uh, this interview just, well, a few minutes before you go on stage. And this podcast may not be released for a few weeks, a few months. And in that time, given the current situation, anything may have happened. What are your predictions for the next, I don't know, year or so. My predictions is that it will continue to be unpredictable. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I sort of, on Theresa May, alternate my view by the hour on whether she's going to last five years or two years or won't make it past the weekend. She's next door in Maidenhead. That's right. I was in Maidenhead the other day and doing sort of taking the mick out of her. And a couple of people got a bit annoyed that I wasn't harder on her, which I thought was very interesting. So rebellion at home for Theresa May. Imagine if she lost a seat. I can't see it. I mean, it was an art centre and it was probably full of liberal lefty types. But uh, it was, um, yeah, people there not happy with it. I got this theory that if I ever want to get anywhere, if I ever need directions, the best person to ask would be a stand-up comic. Is that fair? If I were to hit you with a, a quiz like how do I get the wig in or something <laughs> like that, would you be able to help me? How did you get here? I'm, I, I do it by train. I, do, I can drive, but I got rid of my car when I moved to London. So what I've become obsessed with, I can, and it's just like a... It, I only realised I was obsessed with it was when someone the other day said they were going somewhere. And I realised that I probably know which London train station they would have to leave from. So, you know, if you're going sort of Derby, Leicester, you go from St Pancras. If you're doing Leeds, Edinburgh, York, you go from King's Cross. If you're going west, if you're going Bristol or Wales, you go from Paddington. So already I've started to build today Paddington via Twyford. Um... So absolutely, transport links. If you go by car, comedians will have an encyclopedic knowledge of the roads. If they go by train, they will know the train network very, very well. What about things like hotels and B&Bs and things like that? Tell me all about a comedian's experience. The problem is, you always think, well, I'm getting paid this much for the gig, it's costing me this much to get there. You sort of penny pinch on your accommodation. And I always regret it. I always think, I should have just, for the sake of feeling like I'm not a complete loser, I should have spent that extra 20 quid to, you know... Come on. Have a kettle. I remember, where did I stay once that was the most depressing? Huddersfield. Was the, I mean, I stayed in a B&B there that was, I went single room instead of double. It was basically like in a box room. There were like brown stains on the wall. It was, the sink, the tap was, the cold tap wouldn't run cold. Just, you know, little things. Where you just, if you're at the end of your tether anyway, they will finish you off. But I always, I, Premier Inns are good. Because you get, if you're booking well enough in advance, they're very cheap. You've got a good night guarantee. And on top of that, the breakfasts are all you can eat. Buffet breakfasts. 
And they've added bubble and squeak to the menu. Dangerous territory breakfasts on their own, though, aren't they? They are, yeah, yeah. It's a real letdown. You know, they say, oh, it's just continental. You think, oh, come on, man. I've come all the way from London for this. So what, in your opinion, makes Henley Festival such a special place to be, such a special place to perform? Well, it's, I think it's the, the natural beauty of the area is always a treat. You know, comedy takes place on the whole. It's a pretty grungy, low at heel, down at heel places, you know, and they're often not run properly. It's often, you know, a, a faulty mic next to a fag machine in a, in, a, in a crap pub. It's always a pleasure to come to somewhere that is immaculate, that is well run, that looks beautiful. Like, that's, that's a treat for anyone to perform in, really. Hi there, this is Stephen K. Amos, and you're listening to the Henley Festival Podcast. So finally, anyone who made it to the Bedouin stage on the Friday night would have witnessed what for me was one of the highlights of the festival. The phenomenal Faith Ibranco played so well with such energy that the crowd demanded they come back again and again. But there is more to their story than just amazing music. It's a tale of hope and love with an ending that's only just begun. Our group is called Faith y Branco. Uh, I am Faith and this is my husband. Hello, Branco. Hello, hello, hello. <laughs> 2009, I went to Serbia to learn the accordion, the Romani style in Serbia. And while I was there, I was looking for a violinist to come to the UK. And I asked around who was the best violinist in Serbia. And that was when I was taken to Branco's house. And at that time, things were a lot more complicated than I realised. And then after a couple of years, I went back and saw him and my eyes had kind of changed shape. (laughs) Oh, here's the changed shape. And we fell in love and we spent the next five years uh, just working out practically how we could be together. It was very difficult with immigration law. It was very difficult with our two cultures, very different. Um, I'm from Oxford, he's from uh, Romani village trying to work out a path that we could go forward. So we finally got to the point now where a lot of things are starting to happen for us. What kind of reaction do you get from people? People who are not necessarily jazz or folk fans, but people who've never really heard the music before. Tell me in Serbian. People who don't know that genre of music still have huge reactions. They feel the fire, they, un- they understand the technique, they understand the emotion. They understand that it's something very different that they're not usually hearing. Something new. And people are always saying, you're the best, you're the best. <laughs> Someone said to him yesterday, I don't even love the violin. But since I heard you play it, I now love the violin. Hello. Uh, Branko says this is his favourite festival ever. And Victor, who is also from Yugoslavia, says it's also his favourite festival. And Branko says, do you like his shoes? Show your shoes, Branko. Other musicians from where you live, you no, know, not necessarily as good as you, but with that kind of talent. Uh, 
Da, my village is best, best musician. Really? Best, best, best. I don't believe how play. Why? Why? Because this is genetic for the gypsy people who have that uh, uh, genetic. I believe it. this is the power for God. I believe that this. Your instrument, the accordion. I don't know how to describe it. It's not necessarily the. Um, choose my words carefully. Yeah, you it know, works. there's something of this. Uh, yeah, I'll go. I'll it's go with very that. Sexy. <laughs> That was the word I didn't want to say, but you've said it before. <laughs> um, well, no, no, do you know what? I've never actually been a huge fan of the accordion. I was kind of <laughs> forced into playing it because I, I'm a pianist. Oh, okay. But due to my lifestyle, it was very impractical okay, to be carrying a piano around. Um, but actually, the one style of accordion playing that really touches me, that has a lot of pure emotion in it, is the style from his village. That kind of gypsy style. So that's the style I've kind of become glued to. Honestly, a lot of other styles just make me feel like vomiting a bit. It's just like... <laughs> That'd be a show. Woo! <laughs> I am the Lord of God. He would take him to see the world. He so he could explain his violin and his music. And so that people could know him. And he was given all of that. And he is very thankful. And that's why I can say that God and if you think that Faith and Branco's story should be made into a film, then someone has already beaten you to it. Keep an eye out for a documentary about the pair and also their award-winning album, Gypsy Lover. Thanks for listening to the Henley Festival podcast. We'll be putting these out every couple of weeks, so do remember to subscribe. Coming up in future episodes, you'll be hearing from Goldie, Russell Kane and Sarah Pascoe, to name just a few. Remember to keep an eye on the website, henley-festival.co.uk and our social media for details about the 2018 festival, and we hope to see you there.